So, 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Good job, Aaron. See Neil or Julie after a church and they will cut you the $150 check that I promised you for reading the scripture for me. Um, first of all, I admit that this is going to be a different kind of lesson or sermon or whatever you want to call it today than you're probably used to here or probably used to anywhere because, of course, I'm unique and different, so what did you really expect? Hopefully you'll like it and not get up in the middle of it and run out the back door. Hopefully you'll get something out of it and hopefully you will learn from it and it will deepen your faith in God and give you a better foundation and understanding of who He is. So, First of all, I want to teach today on something that has literally changed my life. It is the sole reason that I'm up here today. It is the sole reason that I care to come teach youth. It is the reason that I care to do everything that I do here in church today. And I'll get to what it's going to be in a minute, but it is the foundation, basically, of everything that you build your relationship with God on. Everything that you do comes or stems from this, and if you don't have this foundation that I'm going to go into in a few minutes, um, you just can't have the, the relationship with God that we should have, honestly. So, before I get into what I'm teaching on, I want to back up and tell you a little bit about me, first of all. Um, First of all, I was not raised in church. And when I say I wasn't raised in church, I don't mean we went to church on Sunday or Easter or a few other days of the year. I mean, we did not go to church ever. I remember as a kid going one time to a revival because somebody begged us to go and we went to it. And that's the only time that I know of that we went to a church. If we went to a church, somebody was getting married or somebody was dying. And a lot of people say there's not a whole lot of difference in that. But I'm not going to get into that because I don't want to sleep on the couch tonight. So, but anyways, I wasn't raised in church. I didn't really know anything about the Bible. I knew the very basic stuff. I knew who Jesus was. And I knew that Jesus came and was born of a virgin. And he went through what he went through on earth. And he died in my place on the cross, and he took my sins. I knew all that, but I didn't really understand what it actually meant. I didn't really know why or how that worked, but I had that little bit of knowledge, and that's basically all I really knew. That's basically the extent of my biblical knowledge of that time. So I never really exactly doubted God, I don't guess. I never went as far to say God don't exist, but at the same time, I never lived as Though God was real, I never really believed that He was really real. I believe there was something, but I didn't really know exactly what it was. And I definitely didn't live a godly life whatsoever at all, which is another thing about my past. Some of you may or may not know a little bit about it, but I lived a very unholy, sinful, ugly life for most of my life till mid-20s or so when we started going to church. And... I was involved in a whole lot of stuff. I'm not going to get into all that of what all I did, but just basically know if it's something sinful you can get into, I've been around it or in it. That's not a good place to be. So basically, like I said, I lived a very unholy, ungodly lifestyle. So I figured if there was a God, since all the stuff that I have done 
And so it's all the bad stuff that I've done in my life. And my thought and my perception of God, I was thinking, you know, why would God want anything to do with me? I've done all this stuff. I've done all this bad stuff. I've been around all these horrible people. I've done all these things that are completely against the Word of God. Instead of leading people to Christ for so many years, I know I did my part of leading people the opposite way to hell. So if there is a God, why in the world would He want anything to do with me? So basically I kind of figured God wrote me off a long time ago. figured God would be like, there's nothing I can do with Him. I'll take Aaron, Jeb, and Reuben, but Kenny, he can just go on. I have no use for him. And that's the way I thought at that time. So we'll just kind of pause there and fast forward a little bit. And there are basically two people, two men on this earth that I give credit to for me standing up here today. And I don't mean at Cypress Street. I mean in church or in Christianity as a whole. And the first one, well, this happened about 2004 or 5. I'm not good with dates, so just kind of go with those dates. But we were sitting in my living room, and I was flipping through TV. And I got up to go to the kitchen, and the TV just happened to stop on a channel. I didn't plan it or anything, but it stopped on, like, the local broadcast channel, whatever it is, Channel 13 or something. And there was a church on TV. matter of fact, it was an assembly. And I went in the kitchen, and I couldn't see the TV, but I could hear it. And I remember thinking, I know this voice. I know this person that's on TV preaching, but there's a problem. He can't, he can't be on TV preaching because this was one of my good friends back in, back in the day that I hung around with. And when I say he, I lived an unholy life, I made him look like a saint. He was involved in all kinds of stuff. They owned a uh, bell bond business, and they got into a lot of illegal stuff with that. And they were paying off so many law enforcement judges that the local law enforcement couldn't touch them. They got the FBI involved. And when the FBI finally arrested him and his group, the headline read that they busted the biggest criminal organization family that North Louisiana has ever seen. So that's just the kind of person that I hung around with. And that's why I figured that, first of all, he wouldn't be preaching because he wouldn't have nothing to do with the church. Second, he wouldn't be preaching. And third of all, Last I heard, he had six life sentences against him. And a lot of the people they got caught with are still in jail and will be forever. But for special circumstances, he ended up getting out of prison in three years. And I believe it's because God had other plans for him because he's done a lot of stuff. So when I went back in the living room, I saw this man on TV, and it was who I thought it was. He was preaching. He was the, one of the associate pastors at the assembly. And I remember thinking, if God can forgive this guy who was admittedly a whole lot worse than I was, then there is actually hope for me. So I remember thinking that, and I went and got our Bible the next couple of days off the shelf, and I blew like the pitcher's mound of dirt that was over it off because we never opened it at that time. And I started reading it, and I started getting involved in it, and I figured, you know, I'll just read through it, and I'll start getting into Christianity some. And I read the four Gospels first, and then for some reason I skipped everything else and went to the book of Revelation don't know why I did that. But when you read Revelation and you don't really have a whole lot of information on why you believe stuff, you start reading some really crazy stuff. Just not, in, not just in there, but in the rest of the Bible. I mean, there's beasts and seven-headed things, and there's a fish that swallowed people and kept them in his belly for a few days. And I started really thinking, is this really a true book? This book was written thousands of years ago with, by people, passed down from people. 
And there's just all this crazy stuff in it. How can this possibly be true? So about this time, I came to the conclusion that there's a lot of weird stuff in here. And I really need to know if this is true before I dedicate my life to this. Because I don't want to waste my time living my life on something that could be just no more than a fairy tale that somebody wrote down. So I started really trying to go find answers to this. And I asked some of my family people who claimed that they were Christian, which I'm not saying that they wasn't, but, and I asked them, you know, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe that Christianity is actually true? And I figured that I'd get these answers and it'd be pretty simple and I would get the answers and I'd move on and start learning about Christianity and everything and deepen my faith over time. But as it turned out, the answers that I got honestly were pretty stupid. <laughs> they, instead of leading me closer to belief in the Bible, it actually took me the other way for a while. One of the first answers I started getting was, um, I asked, why did you believe the Bible? In Christianity. And a lot of people told me the first answer they got was, I believe it by faith. You know, the Bible says that you have to have faith. The Bible says faith without works is dead. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I'm thinking, you're telling me to believe the Bible by faith, which you should. But you're telling me that because the book, which I'm questioning, tells you to believe it by faith. And I'm thinking, that's just totally the dumbest answer I could think of. But... I mean, in the same logic, I could write you a letter that says I'm Superman and tell you in the letter to believe it, and by that letter you have to believe it. To me, that was the same thing. So I thought that answer was completely dumb, and it did not satisfy me whatsoever. So one of the next answers I got a lot of time is, well, I was born into it, which is great. It's a good way to start your Christianity, but if you're born into it, you kind of are raised in it, but you really have no reasons why you believe it either. You're just kind of born into it or you marry into it. So to me, that really didn't satisfy my answers either. I was still pretty much lost as to why the Bible was true and why Christianity was true. Then I got other answers, something like, you know, they tried to prove it by Scripture. And when I look back, I probably made a lot of people mad, and I really didn't mean to. But when they start trying to spout out chapters and verses, I'd stop them. I don't, I don't care what the Bible says at this point. I'm questioning the Bible. You can't prove the Bible to me by quoting the Bible that I'm questioning. I said, that don't work. So looking back, I probably made some people mad with that, but I really didn't mean to. Another answer I got a lot of time was tradition. Well, you know. My aunts and uncles and grandmas, we've always been Christian, so, you know, we just, I'm, I'm a Christian because of that. And just to tell you, tr traditions can be good, but they can also end up with no point. Well, I was listening to a preacher one time that said that they had a, a, a young lady in the congregation, every time that they would do a dinner, she would bring a ham up there, and both ends of the ham would be cut off. So at the dinner one time, the little daughter asked why she did it. And she said, I don't know. Go ask Grandma. She's always done it. So we picked it up. And she went and asked Grandma. And she said, I don't know. My, grand my mom did it. So she went and asked her great-grandma what the purpose was. It? You know, does it soak up the juices better and make it taste better? She said, absolutely not. I was poor and couldn't buy a pan. And the turkey didn't fit in it. So I cut the ends off so it would fit. And that was the only reason they did it. So traditions can be good, but they can also end up with absolutely no point either. So... On my way to trying to prove the Bible was true with answers that I figured would be really easy, it was turning out to be a lot harder than I figured. And it was turning out to push me further away from 
God in the Bible than bringing me closer to it because I couldn't find an answer that really made me think, well, the Bible's true because of this or that. So about this time, we started just trying different churches, and we ended up going to First West down here because, of course, it was like one of the biggest churches, so we figured it had to be great, right? So we went there, and the first time we went there, there was a preacher. I think his name was Dr. Youth or something. But it was his last Sunday there. He was going off to another church to somewhere else. I don't remember where he went. And we sat through a couple of preachers, and then they got an intern, not an intern pastor, an interim pastor, and his name was Dr. Bob Butley. And he has like 8,286 doctorate degrees or something like that. And the man is very, very educated. If you go online, he has a verse-by-verse Bible study on there of every single verse in the Bible, like paragraphs of what it means in original languages, the culture, everything. He is a very, very educated person. And the first thing I've realized about him is he was really unusual. Most of the time, you know, in a church, especially like that, you expect this guy to come out in this nice suit and dressed up and everything. And this guy walks out in a pair of flip-flops, khaki shorts, and an untucked Hawaiian flower shirt. So I was kind of thinking, well, this guy's either a quack or he's pretty cool, one of the two, so we'll figure it out. But he went on preaching, and I found out that he preached, even though he was Baptist, he preached the Bible and the Scripture and what it means. He didn't let his Baptist... I guess, denomination or presuppositions or anything like that influenced the meaning of it. I thought that was pretty cool. So I really liked this guy. And shortly after that, he started teaching a uh, Wednesday night Bible class for a couple weeks, two or three weeks. I don't really remember. But it it was called, um, um, what was it called? It was called, Is the Bible and Christianity Trustworthy? And I was thinking... You know, this is maybe what I've been looking for. We'll go to one of those classes. Maybe it'll be cool. Maybe it'll be a waste of time. We won't have to go back to any of them. But we went to his class, and we sat through it, and he started giving out a bunch of sheets and stuff and paperwork about it. And after um, we sat there for a while, he answered pretty much every question I had about the Bible within a couple weeks. But he answered it not with the Bible whatsoever. He answered it every single part of it with secular evidence that had nothing to do with the Bible, which really kind of started to satisfy my curiosity if the Bible's true because, like I said, I didn't want anybody to try to prove the Bible to me from the Bible. I wanted hard evidence from it. And a lot of people say, well, you know, there is no evidence. You're supposed to accept it by faith, like I said earlier. But while we are supposed to accept it by faith, I think there is a lot of uh, evidence for the Bible that people are unaware of. And... I want to try to give you some of these evidences later on today. Because if you don't have that, you're here, and I'm not saying you're not a Christian or anything, but you're missing out on part of what you could have. You don't have the relationship with God that you could have if you had a true foundation of God. You don't have what you could possibly have without this. I know today also... I will be breaking one of the major rules that they first taught us in school. They said that you're not supposed to give the congregation a whole lot of information at one time because you won't remember it. Well, I don't expect you to remember it. I'm going to give you a lot of verses, scriptures, and stuff today. I know you're not going to remember it. I don't expect you to remember it. If you have something to take some notes on, write them down. You can go back and study it later. But what I do expect it to do is open your minds to these evidences and just hear it and understand it. And hopefully you'll remember some of them. Hopefully you can go back home maybe and listen to it. 
I guess it's being recorded. Okay, he says it's being recorded, so if you ever want to listen to it again and find out, remember some of the evidences I go over, you can listen to it again, or you can come see me and I can get you a copy of the sheet or something. But I just expect you to hear it, let it open your minds, and let, let it really sink in that there are a lot of evidences for the trustworthiness of the Bible and for Christianity. So, before I start there, I want to ask you two questions. Not to answer out loud, of course, unless you just want to shout an answer, but... First question is, what if you were born in China or Korea or Pakistan or Norway or somewhere where Christianity is not the primary religion? What would you be if you were born there? Would you still be a Christian? And if you think, of course the answer you want to say is yes, but really think about it. What would make you go against the Buddhist religion or the Muslim, what would make you go against that and go against your family and say, I want to be a Christian? Why would you, why would you decide to be a Christian in a place that's not primarily Christian? So that's just something to think about for a minute. If you were born in a different part of the world, would you still be a Christian? Or are you a Christian mainly because of the culture and the area you were born in? And if that's true, we really need to do some studying and find out why we are. The second question, like Aaron read the scripture, if somebody came up and asked you, why do you believe the Bible to be true, or why do you believe Christianity to be true, what would you tell them? What kind of answers would you give them? And that is a very important question because, first of all, if somebody's really seeking the answer and you don't really have an answer to tell them, like it did me for so long, instead of leading you closer to God, it could actually take you completely the opposite way. Because they're saying, just like me, they'd be like, well, you know, they don't really have an answer. Why should I believe it? They don't even know why they believe it. And the second thing, if you don't have the true answer of why you really believe the Bible and why you really believe in Christianity, you're cheating yourself. You don't really know why you believe it. And if you don't really know why, for 100% why you believe it, you can't have the foundation of faith that you should have, period. You just can't. So, now that hopefully I've caught your attention with this, we're going to turn to some of the evidences. And I'm going to have to read some of this because it's a lot of stuff. But, so, forgive me for looking at notes a lot. The first evidence is the history of the Bible. Now, again, like I said, I didn't want any evidence coming from the Bible, but there's evidence of the history of the Bible. The first evidence is no other book in the world has had as many ancient manuscripts as the Bible does. We have more than 24,000 manuscripts of the Bible that have been found over, the, over time. The next in line is only 600. That is a huge difference. Imagine that. We have over 24,000 pieces of the Old Testament New Testament to compare what we got to. Now, a lot of people say, well, the Bible translates word for word, which is not true because, first of all, different languages don't have all the letters and don't have words, and there's words added for clarity, but the message and the point is the same. All of that matches. Second evidence for the history of the Bible has been banned, burned, trash, mocked. They've tried to disprove it. They've tried to say it's a fairy tale. They've tried to do everything they can possibly do to it, but the Bible still stands today as the greatest selling book in history, and that don't change. There's a philosopher in the 1700s by the name of Voltaire. He hated Christianity. 
He said that Christianity is the most absurd and bloody religion to ever infect the world. I hope all Christians die. I can't wait for this religion to be wiped out of the world. He said, a hundred years from now, there won't be a Bible or a Christian anywhere on earth. That was in the 1700s. This guy's dead and gone now. But the Bible still stands as the greatest book in history, right? Yeah. It's also um, eyewitness accounts. If any of you ever been in court or lawyer or anything like that, you know the most trustworthy people are people that saw it. This is not, um, it's not accounts of people that said, well, I think that... Somebody told me this about Jesus, so I'm going to write it down. Or, you know, Aaron told me he saw Jesus do this. So I'll go ahead and write it down. It's people that walked with Jesus and lived with him and saw the miracles and saw the healings he did and saw everything he did. And they took that and wrote it down so we would have it today. So most of what we have is eyewitness accounts of people. is eyewitness accounts of people that saw firsthand and they took what they saw and wrote down so we could have it today. And so the main part of that is eyewitness accounts. It's first-hand people that saw it, and that means a whole lot more. Another part for the history of the Bible is every single one of the disciples, except for John, died a horrible death because of the testimony of Jesus. And they kept preaching what they saw, and they kept talking about and teaching what they knew. Do you think that 11 other people, if they knew it was a lie, knew what they wrote down was a lie, they would really go through what they went through? And suffer horrible deaths. Like, I mean, Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So, do you think 11 people would go through horrible lives and horrible deaths like that if they knew of the lie? I don't. I sure wouldn't do it. And probably none of you would either. So, there's just a little bit of history there, and we could keep going, but for time's sake, we're going to have to cut it short a little bit. The evidence number two is the consistency of the Bible. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what the Bible truly is. When they hold it, they see it as a book, which is actually not. The book of the Bible, as we call it, is actually a library that you're holding in your hands of 66 different letters or books, whatever you want to call them. But it's a small library that you're holding. It is a collection of books. The Bible was written over a period of over 1,600 years. That's a long time. If you took somebody right now next week to write something, they probably wouldn't have the same thing. But over a 1,600-year period, the Bible is still consistent from the very front to the very back. It never contradicts itself. There may be places where it seems like it does, but if you study it, I guarantee you you'll figure out what's wrong there and find out that the Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible was written by more than 40 authors. That's more than 40 people that took time to write this Bible. These people were kings. They were rulers. Some of them were absolutely nobodies. I mean, you look at Amos. He called himself a fruit picker. But God gave him a message and he wrote the book. But still, over that many authors and that many years, the book still is consistent from the front to back. The message is the same completely throughout the Bible. And it starts with redemption of mankind and leads to good triumphing over evil from the very front to the very back never contradicts itself. The Bible is completely, 100% consistent, which leads me to believe that that is a huge evidence for the reliability of the trustworthiness of the Bible and of Christianity. And the third evidence that I have, which is one of my favorite ones, I don't know why, but not one discovery, there is archaeology in the Bible, but not one discovery has ever been made that contradicts the scripture of the Bible. Do you get that? 
just to make sure I'll read that part again. Not one discovery has ever been made that contradicts the Scripture of the Bible. Out of all the things that they have dug up, out of everything that they have uncovered, out of everything that they have found, not one single piece of it contradicts anything in the Bible. Not one of them. When history didn't know stuff, the Bible knew it. We read it in the Bible, and later on by archaeology it was proved to be true. And just some examples of that, there is a group in the Bible called the Hittites. I guess that's how you say the word. If not, we don't know. You don't know, so we're good. But opponents of the Bible said that they were a completely made-up group. They said that they never existed. There is no mention of them in secular literature or anything anywhere ever. They said they were a completely made-up group. They never existed, and the Bible was obviously wrong here. But there is a library that archaeologists uncovered in Turkey. And when they uncovered stuff, they found out that there was a group called the Hittites. And not only did they live, they were a huge empire for about 1,200 years. So the Bible talked about them long before they knew that they were here. Opponents of the Bible said that it were made-up group. But archaeology later proved that the Bible was 100% true. And when history didn't know about it, the Bible did. And it proved to be true. There was a guy named Belshazzar. Nice name. Thinking about changing my name to that, by the way. But he was one of the last kings of the... One of the last Babylonian kings, according to Daniel chapter 5. However, opponents of the Bible said that he is a completely made-up person. There's no mention of him anywhere. Is not true. There's actually, if you look in the list of Babylonian kings, every time period is accounted for and every king's there, there's absolutely no room for him there. So 100% that it is false. He is not a person and the Bible is made up and is completely false. But guess what? Archaeologists in Iraq found something called a Nabonidus cylinder. It's, guess what? It's a cylinder-shaped object. And basically what it is, it's a letter written by a guy named Nabonidus. And he was the last king in Babylon. And him and his family in this letter, he wrote how him and his family went and they started worshiping the moon god Zin. And they started following a group of followers around that believed they were following this moon god. So when he left to follow this moon god, he left his son in charge of Babylon. Guess who his son was? His name was Belshazzar. So, when the Bible told about Belshazzar and history said it wasn't true, everybody said he was made up. The Bible talked about him, said he was right, said he was a king. And when archaeologists dug it up, they found it and found out to be true. They found out to be he was there and be the king. And another thing that archaeology has discovered is something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most of you are probably familiar with that. And found between 1946 and 1956. They include the oldest known surviving manuscripts of the Bible that we have today. Now, that is a huge discovery because of the date. Before the discovery of these, the oldest, um, the oldest manuscripts of the Bible we had only dated back to around 900 A.D. That's about 900 years after Jesus. So, to me, if you write something at that time period and then supposedly write these for a pro, uh, prophetic prophecies, it don't really mean a lot because you're kind of like writing here. You could write it now about a date that happened way back then 
and it don't really mean anything. It's kind of like you could happen, you could write what happened last week and say you wrote it two weeks ago, and there's no way that you to prove that you didn't do it. But by the finding of these Dead Sea Scrolls, it pushed the date back to about 200 B.C. And what that did, the importance of that, is it made the prophetic prophecies mean so much more because we can now prove that they were actually written way before the events happened. And that is like a huge impact on why I believe the Bible and why Christianity is actually trustworthy. So, number four for the evidence is what we were just talking about, predicted and fulfilled prophecy. Now, I know it would be hard for you to predict what's going to happen when you leave here today and what's exactly going to happen at the picnic today or what's going to happen next week. But a lot of these prophets wrote things hundreds of years before it happened. And they came true with 100% accuracy every time. And I'm just going to give you a couple of these if you want to write some of these notes down so you can go back and study it later or listen to it again later and find them. But Isaiah 53 describes the life of Jesus in detail 700 years before it happened. Think about that. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote down in chapter 53 details about his life that no way possible he could have known unless it was actually a message from God. That's amazing to him. That right there is evidence for something supernatural. Micah 5.2 names Bethlehem as the exact birthplace of Jesus over 700 years before he was born there. Now, it's really interesting to note that he named Bethlehem that because if he was just trying to write, a, write something that he thought would happen, he wouldn't have picked Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a no-having-nothing city. If it was there today, it probably wouldn't even have a stoplight. There was nothing there much. They said that when they drafted soldiers for, to go to war and stuff, they wouldn't even pull people from Bethlehem because there wouldn't be enough people there to do the daily activities there. So nobody in their right mind would have picked Bethlehem as a place for Jesus to be born unless they knew for sure it was from God. And that's exactly what Micah did, and picked Bethlehem. And that's exactly where Jesus was born, of course. So, Isaiah 9.1 names Galilee as the focus of Jesus' early ministry. Many years before it happened, Isaiah wrote it. And we know, of course, that that was indeed the focus of Jesus' early ministry. Zechariah 9.9 predicts that the king will come riding on a donkey. And, of course, we know it's fulfilled in the New Testament when Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. Psalm 22.16 tells us that his hands and feet will be pierced. And we know that when he was crucified on the cross, they drove nails through his hands and through his feet for our sins that he did not commit. Isaiah 53.12 tells us he'll be crucified with thieves. And we know from Scripture, and we know from other evidence that Jesus was indeed crucified with a thief on each side of him. Again, fulfilled prophecy. Psalm 34.20 says that not one single one of his bones will be broken. And of course we know from Scripture that it was fulfilled and not one single bone of Jesus was broken at any time. So I challenge you today, if you want a good challenge, since Reuben gave you homework, I'll give you homework too. If you can find another book that has exact predicted prophecy in it, such as this, that has proved to be written way before it happened, bring it to me and I'll study it. But I have looked and I have tried to find it. And I tell you, from my experience, you can't find it. I hadn't seen anything like it. And 
One of the last evidences I have is permanently changed lives. Now, there is no doubt that in every religion of every part of the world, there have been people who had their life changed by their religion. There's no doubt about that, and I know that's possible. But the difference is, is these people changed their life basically on their own because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. When a Christian is changed, the person is not actually changing. The Holy Spirit comes into the, your body and changes you from the inside. So that's what I mean by that. I've seen people that are selfish, selfish become selfless and start putting everybody above them. I've seen people go from all about me to I want to help other people and put God first. I've seen drug addicts come clean, never touch another drug in their life. I've seen alcoholics stop drinking. I've seen prostitutes quit running the streets. I've seen everything that you can think of. I've seen people change, and a lot of, I mean, of course, some of them do backslide, but a lot of them are changed permanently by it. I've seen marriages that are on the brink of disaster when God comes in and changes their life and completely restores the marriage. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, at a minister's meeting we were at, there was a guy speaking, and a very bold pastor, and he got up and told all about his marriage and how he was on the brink of divorce at one time and everything. And he went back to church and prayed about it and they rededicated their life to everything and their marriage got better. And then he told about how he was sitting in bed one day or well, he woke up the next morning and he was sitting there with his wife and he was grabbing her and telling you know, baby, I love you and your hair is so pretty today. I love your eyes. I love to just sit in bed and just hold you. I just love you so much, Amanda. Problem was, her name's Audrey. <laughs> and oddly enough, she didn't get mad at him for some reason. I don't understand why Kayla would, I, I would be sleeping in my office probably, am I right? Yeah, okay. So, but after looking at all these evidences that I pointed out today, I believe that there are enough evidence from secular sources that prove that the Bible is completely trustworthy and that Jesus is who he says he is and Christianity is real. So that's why I said earlier, if you were born in another part of the world, would you still be a Christian? And that's a very serious uh, question that you really need to answer because if you don't really have a foundation of why you believe what you believe, you're missing out. You're missing something and you can never be where you need to be, I guess is what I'm trying to say, without that true foundation. Because for me, when I found out all this and I finally decided that Christianity was true and that the Bible was indeed a supernatural book, it changed my life. And that's when we started to really dive into church and that's when we really started to change our life and really started getting involved in church and getting involved with youth because I realized that this book, there was something to it. There was really something to all this Christianity stuff. It wasn't just the made-up fictional book that... I thought it may be at some time. It wasn't just a fairy tale that a bunch of people wrote and put together. This was a real book with a real God and with a real Jesus that came to save us because he loved us that much for sins that we committed that he never did, but he still died in our place. So that is what I've got today. So hopefully you got something from it, and hopefully you will take some of these um, these evidences and apply them in your life and become deeper rooted 
in God. And hopefully you will just become a lot closer to Him. Hopefully if somebody asks you what the hope is that you have in you, you will now have some answers. Like I said, I know you won't remember all of it. I don't expect you to. But hopefully you'll remember some of it. And if you need to re-listen to it, you can go on the website or you want a copy of all the stuff I talked about, I can get you a copy of that too. But whatever, however you do it, hopefully you remember some of it. And hopefully that that will change your life and draw you closer to God. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you, God, that we are able to stand here today. We thank you, God, that we have found all these evidences that show us that you are the one true God and that the Bible is true and Christianity is true. We thank you that we have a foundation to build on because we know that that will lead us closer to you in a lot deeper relationship, Lord. I just pray that each person in here has heard certain things that they need to hear to further them in their Christian walk, God, and help them to grow with you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name.